This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a crisis at a major state mental health facility. It is so understaffed, it closed an addiction treatment program recently to reshuffle staff. Meanwhile, the feds are threatening to pull money because they're worried about patient safety. Peter Roper is a reporter for the Pueblo Chieftain, and his phone's been ringing with people who work at this hospital in Pueblo, concerned about what's going on there. And uh, Peter joins us by phone. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. I want to give people a better idea of what this mental health institute is. It primarily treats people in the justice system, so to evaluate them or treats them when they're found not guilty or can't stand trial because of psychiatric issues. The Aurora Theater shooter spent time there. The accused Planned Parenthood shooter is also there. And uh, there are lots of lower-profile patients, of course. Uh, Just briefly, though, Peter, from your reporting, what are the patients like at this hospital? What kind of needs do they have? Well, the, the, the hospital in Pueblo has been Colorado's main hospital for the criminally insane and other court-referred patients for more than 130 years. You know, locally, we just call it the state hospital, but its formal name is the Colorado Mental Health Institute of Pueblo, and it has about 450 beds. Yeah. In, in recent years, its patient load has grown steadily towards court-referred. So most of the people who were in that facility these days are there because the courts have sent them there, either for evaluation or because they're, uh, they've been ruled to be um, not guilty by reason of insanity. So it's a very challenging place to work. Uh, which makes it perhaps harder to attract uh, employees. That's part of the picture here. What have you found are the effects of the understaffing at the hospital? What, what does that mean for the patients? Well, I... There, there's been a history uh, in recent years, and, and it probably goes back further. Uh, there have been incidents at times when, when patients uh, have had unfortunate you know, outcomes that, through restraints and other things. I know the hospital has been sued. In, in my own reporting over the last couple of weeks, I've heard mostly from staff. And I think what sometimes people, the public doesn't realize, the state hospital can be a really dangerous place to work. Um, the patients who are there are sometimes violent. Um, they're offenders with mental problems. Um, some require one-to-one staffing ratio, which means hmm. there is a staff member assigned to that one patient for their, all of their waking hours. Um, they often, that, which was a very stressful situation, how the staff handles it is they get assigned for two hours at a time to watch a particular patient, and then they switch over to somebody else. But it can be very intense, and staff often tell inspectors, you'll read it in reports, that when they are short-staffed, they don't feel safe. Um, patients can assault staff. Uh, I had a report last week that a, a patient got very aggressive with a nurse, tore her shirt, um, and, and yet the woman was not allowed to leave her unit because there was no one to replace her, so she literally stapled her shirt back together to stay on duty. Now, the Department of Human Services, which oversees the hospital, um, said that wasn't quite an accurate report, but I've heard from many, many staffers out there who have said um, they're so shorthanded they can't leave their units and, they, and they're not getting much help from administration. So that's, that's all part of the atmosphere right now. Mm. Uh, this isn't, as you hinted, the first controversy for this institution. Indeed, it faced a lawsuit last year for not doing court-ordered psychiatric evaluations in a timely way. And it was actually the state itself that found the hospital was putting patients in seclusion and using restraints more than it should be. So along come the feds. They do an inspection recently in which they found this severe staffing shortage. They say the hospital's not meeting the needs of its patients, and they threaten to withhold federal money 
The state, of course, wants to avoid that. And so to address the problems on an immediate basis, employees are now required to work overtime, not take vacation. The state has set aside rules meant to protect employees from working long hours, rules that are supposed to protect the staff, but also patients. And um, that means then that there has been, I gather, some fallout from the, the rule changes and the mandatory overtime. Well, I initially heard that um, when the, when then Superintendent Ron Hale put those in in position on June sixth, um, they just simply these were a sudden um, emergency personnel rules. People came to work uh, that day and literally found out they weren't going to be allowed to go home after one shift. They were going to be required to work two straight shifts. Um, there was a lot of resentment. There was there was anger. Um, I heard from nurses saying, "Look, I've got kids at home. Um, I'm suddenly being told I have to be here two back to back shifts." Um, and so there, I heard a lot from staff. Uh, definitely, there was pushback. Um, and as the story unfolded that initial week, um, Superintendent Hale then resigned as well. Indeed. So, so there was uh, internally, I think there was a lot of uh, tension and and how they were going to resolve this, and and that's where it, uh, that's where it stood then. Uh, just for some scope here, as of Monday, the hospital was short 88 staffers. That's about 12% of the patient care staff. It is hard for a lot of hospitals to find qualified nurses. I think it's important to say that. So uh, the problem is not exclusive to Pueblo. It's also not new to this facility. You wrote earlier this week about a review done seven years ago, which found the Mental Health Institute was understaffed by about 20% at that time. Correct. But help us parse this out a bit. How much of the problem is the market and the difficulties hiring, and how much of this is potential mismanagement at this particular facility? Well, it's the staff shortage isn't unique to the state hospital in Pueblo either. Um, it's uh, the Department of Human Services, which oversees the state hospital, as well as three regional centers for the for the severely disabled. They all suffer from staff shortages. Um, I think it's difficult sometimes to recruit people to work in some of these environments. The state the state can't keep pace with private sector hospitals who are always ratcheting up on pay and financial incentives to try and attract the nurses and, and the medical um, personnel who's out in the community. There, there's a shortage of those people. I know Parkview and St. Mary Corwin and Pueblo are, are in a competition yeah. to hire. And so the state hospital sits out there as sort of the third hospital in it, and it's a very difficult working environment. It has a challenging patient caseload, um, as do the disabled, as do the regional centers for treating the uh, severely disabled. Um, so I think it's a, I think it's a system wide problem as far as the state is concerned, and it's probably going to take uh, a long and, and and detailed look at at how in the, how could the state can begin to compete to to attract some of these people. There is there are concerns within the state hospital at Pueblo about the about that that institution's particular at, atmosphere, its culture. I've gotten a lot of complaints um, from staff who say that as short as things are, supervisors who are who are rated to help won't come out of their offices to come out and help what they call the line staff, the nurses and social workers and techs who are actually out in the units. Um, so there's so there's some personnel unhappiness that that is aimed up at the top. 
and and I think it, it may have its own problems in, in that in that regard that that have to be looked at. But it is it is a system wide problem from the state. Um, it, it, that's that's the simple fact. We're speaking with Peter Roper, reporter at the Pueblo Chieftain, about his uh, reporting, what he's uncovered at the State Mental Health Institute in Pueblo. So you mentioned that the director Ron Hale has resigned. The state is taking some other steps besides the mandatory overtime. Here's Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn. She talked to us on Friday at a press conference about health care. We're stepping up our hiring plans. We're giving signing bonuses. I mean, when you're the state and you have a civil service system, you don't always have the same kind of flexibility a private sector employer would have. So um, we're trying to work within those confines. And uh, the important thing is making sure our patients are safe. And that was part of redeploying people from the CIRCLE program was to take 18 well-trained professionals and move them into some of the things that are the most important. And the CIRCLE program is that addiction treatment program I mentioned at the outset. The staff has been reshuffled to make up for the gap. Uh, she also said the state is talking to other local hospitals about possibly borrowing staff, nurses willing to work extra shifts at the state hospital. But you wrote that staff at the state institute are paid about 8% less than the private sector. State officials say the institute is not in danger of closing or being forced to right now, and they say the feds have accepted their plan to right the ship. Uh, but there's one more inspection before next week. Is that right? Yeah, they, they've been given a June 28th deadline um, by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the federal agency, to, uh, to, have a, to demonstrate that they can meet staffing requirements which is what they're trying to do. But I think if you look at the details of it and what you hear from staff is basically a bun- the emergency personnel decisions that were made are those that are in place, the mandatory double shift overtime and that sort of those sort of measures, the frozen leave. Uh, it, I think there's some questions as to whether that's sustainable. Mm. Um, and, and then they may get past the June 28th um, deadline and pass that inspection. But uh, when you talk to staff out there, there's concerns that, that this – they could be heading towards a new normal and towards that uh, unless they can find ways to recruit people in the door. And they are recruiting some, but they have problems retaining. Um, they'll get people hired and then people will quit. Mm. Um, so, that's that kind of, so I think there's a very much a wait-and-see attitude out there by the staff who, for the most part, while I heard a lot of, I've heard a lot of complaining in the last two weeks about, about the situation, the, how the personnel was handled, the mandatory requirements, I've also heard a lot uh, these folks do – take pride in what they do. It is a difficult job. Um, and they and and they support each other. They have they have serious questions about hospital administration and people further up the chain of command. But uh, I've I've been impressed at how much they how many of them have said as difficult as it can be. They like what they do. They they feel rewarded by it, and they and they like the people they work with. Despite they have other they have other questions, but that's the que- that's the big issue. Is are, are the changes that they've, the state is trying to make are those sustainable? Will it will it last and and have any sort of um, long-term solution to it. You originally got onto this story because of that addiction treatment program closing so that staff could Correct. be reshuffled. It's it's an unusual program in that it treats those who have uh, drug addiction and mental health issues uh, alongside right. that. And there are people who are waiting years to, to get a part, be a part of that uh, program. And so we're really disappointed when it closed. And I understand that that program got specific funding from the legislature this year from marijuana taxes. So yeah. do, do we know that um, the deci- the decision to close it, if at least temporarily, is even legal? 
I they I don't I can't answer that question. Okay. I know that state lawmakers, particularly Pueblo state lawmakers, had no idea that the hospital was any sort of in any staffing jeopardy that would cause it to um, either get warned by the state or forced to close the Circle program. The Circle program is directly funded by the state with marijuana revenue. Um, so when I when the chieftain learned that the, they had closed down. Um, the, the circle program reassigned the staff, and when I when I talked to state lawmakers to get some reaction, we've been covering uh, addiction quite a lot this year at the Chieftain because of our because of heroin and other issues. They were state lawmakers were stunned that circle had been closed. They they said, "Well, we just finished appropriating money for this," mm-hmm. um, and so they started making um, directing inquiries to uh, Department of Human Services as well. What's going on? Um, the chieftain was asking those same questions, and it took a it took a couple of days to get the full story out of DHS. But we were finally told, well, we flunked the June fifth inspection, and now Medicare has told us if we don't get staff in place, um, we could be uh, we could lose our Medicare funding on uh, June twenty eighth. So I think it took state lawmakers by complete surprise that that things were as as serious as they were at the state hospital, and and right now DHS talks about the Circle program as just simply being temporarily closed. Got it. Um, and, and maybe that answers the questions as far as the as the lawmakers are concerned. I think mostly they feel like uh, DHS wasn't being straight with them about how serious things were go- were getting in Pueblo. Peter, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Peter Roper, reporter at the Pueblo Chieftain. He's been covering and uncovering stories at the State Mental Health Institute in Pueblo, which is under federal review for a severe staff shortage, particularly of nurses. And you can find links to Peter's reporting at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. See if you can guess whom this next voice belongs to. She's now a fixture of TV news in Denver, but this was earlier in 1979. Good afternoon, just a little bit past 3 o'clock at Your Music 62, featuring Peter Frampton's newest album, Where I Should Be. Listen for it tomorrow at midnight on day one. Adele is Adele Arakawa, longtime Nine News anchor. A baby apparently dropped off in an alley in Denver after someone steals a truck in which the baby was left alone. She retires at the end of the month after 24 years at a station that has long dominated the market, but one that's also trying to find its footing in the digital world. And Adele, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be here. So that first clip we played is from very early in your career. What was was your first gig in broadcasting? (laughs) Actually, I'd been at two other stations prior to that. Okay. So that would have been... Uh, 1979. I would have been 22 years old. So I started when I was 16. In radio. In radio at a very small 1,000-watt day timer in my hometown of La Follette, Tennessee, uh, and worked there for a couple of years and then went to WYSH in Clinton, Tennessee, where I was the news director. They hung this moniker around my neck. I was the entire news department. I was it, right? Uh-huh. I had a jock shift, and then I actually did a news shift. I mean, a, yeah, I actually went to, like, 
the Anderson County Courthouse checked the dockets overnight. Actually, we didn't do a, a lot of interviews and actualities because we really didn't have the time. So it was a rip and read. You know, you had the Associated Press wires. You kind of did a little news segment, and that was kind of it. So, But you were living in both worlds of music and news at that time. Yeah, you had You really had was. disc jockey shifts. I did. What did you learn in those early jobs that you still use today? Oh, I think it's kind of about learning how to ad lib uh, because you don't have a script in front of you at any time. Uh, it was learning material. I mean, as far as news goes, I mean, you still had to be current on events no matter what you did. Um, I, I don't know. It kind of gave you a uh, kind of a self-confidence in front of a microphone. Yeah. And what happens, you know, when the, the prompter goes out, are you able to, to vamp? And, and I suppose you rely on those early days. Um, in the 1970s, I understand that a, a station manager told you he'd never hire a woman. <laughs> he did. Yeah. What, what, what? You got in the door, though. But he did. <laughs> you know, back in the day, um, in 1977, women comprised roughly 33 percent. So a third of whoever worked in radio at the time, and that was in front of the camera, behind the camera, on a microphone, behind a microphone. Um, That was it. So two-thirds of the broadcast industry was male. Women were a novelty. Women were just kind of coming into their own, both in radio and television at this time. So the opportunities were there. What was it like, though, when when you got in the door? Was Was it difficult? It was different. It was, I will tell you this, that there was a situation where um, I was, uh, what's a PC way to say it? I was actually let go from one position. Uh, and coincidentally, it was the Monday following um, a weekend where uh, the general manager <laughs> had said, oh, you know, we're doing a, um, a little weekend getaway. Uh, would you like to come? Uh, I said, No. I'd rather not. It was in advance. He was making an advance. Uh, I do believe he was making an advance. Uh, And I was actually working two jobs in radio at that time. Uh, And I won't say what station it was. But, you know, you very quickly learn that, huh, A, you have to be uh, very cognizant of your gender. And you did back then. um, Above board professional. uh, And you always felt like... To be able to succeed, you had to be as good as or better than your male peers. And the male peers were, without exception, very accepting. They uh, were wonderful mentors when I was Mm. very, very young. I don't think that's always the experience. It may not be. It may not be. So I was very fortunate. So gender has always played a role in... Were there things you did to try to fit in? I don't know if I did anything to fit in. I was always a tomboy at heart anyway. Okay. So kind of, yeah, being one of the guys was not that hard. Hmm. (laughs) In 24 years here in Denver, what's the toughest story you've covered? There are a lot of tough stories. Oh, there's so many tough stories. And the the one thing that television news gets kind of a, a bum rap for is, oh, you just do everything that's negative. You do bad news. It's just because I think you remember more distinctly the bad things that happened to you. Uh, you remember the, you know, the bee sting. You remember things that hurt you. Um, and in that vein, uh, I know that we uh, collectively at Nine News and all the other stations in town make a, make an effort to balance the newscast. Um, and I'm not going to say 
you know, trite happy news, but you do. You try to serve the the common good. But, I mean, the stories that do stick out in your mind are the ones that are impactful to the community very often in a negative way, but at the same token, they kind of show you the resilience and the strength of the community that it impacts. What what stands out in that regard? It is, let me give you an example. Uh, At Columbine, one of the students who was killed was Kyle Velasquez. I had the opportunity and the privilege of meeting his parents, Al and Phyllis Velasquez. And in the months uh, that followed, um, they taught me so much. And even in the years that followed, um, after Kyle's death, um, the family was faced with seemingly hardship after hardship, health issues. Um, and they always, and I kept in touch with them through the years, they always would tell me, we are so blessed. And you kind of stop a minute and you think, how can you say that you have been blessed? But they were able to find the good things that had happened to them in life and truly believe in their heart of hearts that they are blessed. Al um, just underwent uh, an amputation. Uh, he has been on dialysis for seven years, waiting for a kidney. Phyllis has had some heart issues and health issues. And they will tell you, we're, we're blessed people. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Nine News anchor Adele Arakawa is with us ahead of her retirement at the end of the month. What do you like least about TV news? I like least uh, <laughs> – there's not just one thing. There's a lot of hyperbole. There's a lot of, look at this. It, there's a lot of sensationalism in it, um, which – are you surrendered to that? No. Or do you try to change it? Uh-huh. <laughs> I say that adamantly. I, I really do. I, I don't like cliches. We tend to lean toward cliches in the industry, too. Um, I think, and I'm Pollyanna, where this comes, I, I think, in the grand scheme of things, is that I've always felt, and I'm old school, that you present the facts, you let people digest those facts, and if they want to form an opinion based on those facts, then they are more than entitled to do that. It is not my job to opine. I'd like to talk a little bit about the future of the news business, um, starting with some numbers. So viewership in general of local news has been down 3 to 4% a mm-hmm. year since 2012. That's according to Oxford University. Um, that's about what happened to the newspaper industry in the mm-hmm. 2000s. Younger viewers especially are leaving TV news sure. uh, at a fast clip. Um, is TV news on its way out? I don't know. I don't have that crystal ball. I don't know where we're going to be five to ten years. And that's, you know, that's the magic question for every general manager and every, you know, stockholder who is looking at the TV industry saying, where are we headed? Um, Gosh, I wonder if I, you're relieved to to be leaving. Oh, my all timing that, is impeccable. All that uncertainty <laughs> just like lording over everyone in the newsroom. It really I mean, I I have been blessed too. Uh, my timing couldn't be better. I I I have I have no idea where we're going to end up. I do believe that there is a need for local news, and local news in some form will survive. I think it will be assimilated in different ways, digested in different ways. I do think people need to be smart enough and most of them are, to discern what is 
um, a trusted news source, people don't always vet what they consume. Um, And there are so many different platforms from which to consume that people um, are learning to trust certain sources as their source of information, uh, as being reliable, as being balanced, as being fair. And that's going to take some time to shake out. I think the pendulum has swung out to a degree um, that it, it it is going to come back. I don't think it's ever going to be come back center where it was before. I mean, mm. back in the day, it was it was the big three: it was ABC, NBC, and CBS. That was it, right? And and half of TV households that had their TVs on were watching Absolutely. nine news. And now, <laughs> now, if you you know pull a four or a five share, it's, it's if you do deal. look at it though, people will come back to you if there's a big breaking story, if there, if there's a major weather event that's mm. happening, the numbers spike. Yeah. Because people come back to you. Well, we asked one of your former co-anchors, Mark Kobrick, to tell us <laughs> a little bit about you. He started by telling us about a time when you and he did a promotional video together. The two of you raced go-karts. <laughs> okay. You've actually done a lot of serious car racing. And uh, Kobrick was completely new to it. And we'll let him pick up this story. Adele was sitting in her car grinning at the start line. And so I thought, well, I, maybe I, I ought to ask the professional. So I said, all right, so give me a tip. And she says to me, never touch the brakes. And I'm going, well, is that what I tell the paramedics when they come, that I never touch the brakes? She says, I'm just telling you, if you want to be in this, don't touch the brakes. And then she said, I'll give you a full lap lead. Uh, by the time I hit the, uh, about a third of the way through the second lap, Adele actually caught me and went around me. <laughs> I finished the race, and we come to the to the stop line, the finish line there, and I said, well, how did you do that? She said, well, I never touched the brakes. <laughs> well, I discovered that's Adele's philosophy for everything. In her life, she has never touched the brakes. What what kind of racing do you do? <laughs> oh, it, it's it's not professional. It's a far cry from. It's it's kind of weekend warrior type of stuff. Okay. Um. I, uh, I I race with a local car club. It's not really racing. I, I, I did some wheel-to-wheel for a few years, uh, and my car and I both got old, uh, and it, you have to be kind of sharpened on your game. What's your car? Uh, right now, it's the same one I've had. I don't know. Right now, it's a 1995 Porsche 911 C4. So it's big. It's cumbersome. It's it's slow. It's It's a slug. Uh, but it's really fun. It's a little momentum car. You kind of have to wind it up. It only has 270 horsepower and weighs 3,000 pounds. That is not a fast car. An agile vehicle. <gasps> Are you going to be doing more of that in retirement? I, you know today? what? I, w- I will still dip my toe in it. But honestly, it is, it's a young person's sport. My son's quite good at it. Oh. I've had him in the car since he was 15. He's now 32. And we both instruct. We, we instruct for a couple of local clubs. Uh, and it's more car control. And and I will say this: Do not, do not do this on the street. Don't do on I twenty five. Too many people do. Um, you do this on a course. Do this on a racetrack. Do it where it's sanctioned. Do it where it's safe. Do it where you've got a lot of. Um, we call them nannies in place on your car. So in other <laughs> words, the car is far going to exceed your 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 ability to drive it. Uh, thank you for being with us. Oh, you know what? I I just have to say this. 23 years has flown by here. And what's made this – and we've never stayed this long anywhere. Five years here, six years there, five years there. That's kind of in the track record. Um, It is such a special place. And it's such a special city. 
Um, and Nine News was such a special, special station um, that, again, I will repeat Alan Phyllis's mantra through life is, I have been blessed. Adele Arakawa retires at the end of the month after decades at Nine News. An hour-long special from Colorado Matters this week devoted to journalism ethics led to some additional questions, and we're going to answer one of them right now in our feedback segment, Loud and Clear. Bill Menezes of Denver, a former journalist-turned-media watchdog, asked on Twitter, how are organizations like the Society of Professional Journalists auditing members for compliance with its code of ethics? SPJ's code includes things like neither speed nor format excuses inaccuracy and avoid conflicts of interest, real or perceived. As for compliance to those, I reached SPJ's ethics chief, Andrew Seaman. I think it's important that there isn't a way to really certify journalists in the U.S. Other countries have tried, and it's just not possible. So the SPJ can't really step in and do that either, because it's not in the spirit of what America is about. It's not in the spirit of what journalism is about. So what we do is we work to really promote and advocate for the use of our code of ethics, which has been around in some form since the 1920s. And it's really the industry standard. So we advocate for that, we push for that, and we're starting more and more to educate the public about the code of ethics. And what we hope happens is that other journalists, you know, police other journalists, so they, they're calling out unethical behavior, and the public also steps in and calls out unethical behavior. And I think this happens quite a bit, and I hope it continues. I think that journalism is actually in a pretty good place right now because the Internet acts as sort of an immune system for errors and corrections. So our goal is to really educate people about the code of ethics and let them, you know, have this discussion about what is and is not acceptable. In a way, it becomes community policing um, as opposed to an organization doing it. Definitely, because I think what is important to remember is that ethics, we sort of have these broad guidelines about what is and is not acceptable. But when it comes to questions about ethics, so whether or not you should do something, whether or not it's appropriate to use a picture, it's rarely a yes or no answer. Usually there's an option C or an option D or, you know, even more than that. So what we want to encourage journalists to do and other people who create journalism is to get to the best and most responsible decisions by following those guidelines. And that's not always a perfect sort of answer that's yes or no. That is Andrew Seaman, who chairs the Ethics Committee at the Society of Professional Journalists. Maybe you know about a series we started called Breaking Bread. Coloradans of different political stripes sit down at a dinner table to see if they can find common ground. Well, an event later this summer caught our eye. On August 10th, the magazine 5280 plans to set up a mile-long table in Denver City Park. There are 600 hosts who will each invite seven people. Organizers say the goal is to encourage connectedness at a time when we need more openness, understanding, and kindness between neighbors. There are many other efforts in Colorado and across the country that encourage people of different minds and backgrounds to come together, and we've put together a list of them at cprnews.org. Lastly, in Loud and Clear, an update. 
A year ago, we heard about a bounty being offered for historical documents connected to the failure of a Jewish farming settlement in Cotopaxi. It's about 75 miles west of Pueblo. This was in the 1880s. A wealthy businessman named Emmanuel Saltiel is often blamed for the colony's failure. Miles Saltiel, Emmanuel's distant cousin, put up $25,000 for documents related to the Cotopaxi colony. He asked Judaic Studies professor Adam Rovner of the University of Denver to authenticate any new evidence. Here's what Rovner told us at the time. He's not only looking for documents that clear the historical name. He's looking for any document that brings to light this history. Well, the reward deadline has passed and Rovner tells us no one submitted documents for review. An anticlimactic ending, perhaps, but one we still wanted to bring you. A robot named Clark has a special skill. Clark is an expert recycler. And Clark is the subject of today's beta test, our focus on scientific and technological breakthroughs in Colorado. Using artificial intelligence, this robot identifies items to be recycled and separates them. Alpine Waste and Recycling in Denver is testing it. Clark is positioned above a conveyor belt, which carries all types of plastics, newspaper, and cardboard. Brent Hildebrand is Alpine's vice president. It kind of looks like a spider with the different arms hanging down, all connected at one point that has the picking mechanism on the end. The robot has learned to recognize product logos as a way to make the sorting process faster. Hildenbrand says more precision means a better end result. It's very important that I have a clean product that I sell to the markets that use it for manufacturing of other products. Clark's inventor is Matanya Horowitz, founder of Denver-based AAMP Robotics. Pardon me. Horowitz got money from the National Science Foundation and first created a prototype of the robot in 2015. He hopes it'll revolutionize the recycling industry. And Matanya, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you very much, Ryan. Help us understand the need here that you're hoping to meet with this robot. Yeah, so um, in the recycling world, what I want you to imagine is when you um, when the collection trucks drop off all that material that uh, you leave at the curb, uh, it goes onto a series of conveyor belts. Uh, they have lots of equipment. It separates uh, out all the different material, the number one plastics, the number two plastics, the cartons, everything like that. The things that can be recycled and can't be because we're not perfect when we do this. Uh, No, certainly not. And that's actually a big challenge for the industry. Uh, You have all kinds of uh, nasty stuff, hypodermic needles, uh, roadkill, diapers uh, that that end up there. Um, But um, despite all the machinery uh, and the automation available in the industry, uh, you nonetheless uh, have a strong need for manual sorting. So people are standing around conveyor belts, sorting this stuff out uh, day in, day out. And so our robotic systems can uh, automate this part of the process. They reach into that material stream, grab the different pieces of material like cartons, and then uh, sort them out for resale on uh, commodity markets. And do they do that better than people or cheaper? What's happening here? Yeah, so there, there's a, many different metrics that matter. Uh, quality of the material is an important one. Uh, as Brent just said, uh, you really want to have high uh, material purity uh, so that it can be reprocessed efficiently. Um, so the robots uh, you know, have perfect memory, uh, and um, as they learn these different materials, uh, you can really count on them to deliver high quality. Um, they can also be pretty quick, uh, so you can, you can kind of count on their high throughput. Um, 
But but there's many many different facets. Cost is actually a, a pretty small part of the puzzle. Um, some of the challenges that, challenges that these recycling facilities face is that they have uh, fairly high rates of turnover. Typically, uh, you can imagine it's not uh, the most fun to be standing there all day. Uh, it smells bad. Um, it, it's uh, yeah, just a, a, a pretty tough job. Um, and so f- recycling facilities are typically always hiring, always trying to staff up, um, mm. and many run understaffed. Uh, and so that kind of um, baseline of capacity uh, that the robots provide ends up being pretty important for them. So can Clark, the, this recycling robot or sorting robot, do the equivalent in robotics of touching and seeing? You know, it's it's all about the seeing. Uh, so the robots themselves, uh, the grippers, a lot of that hardware, it's actually been around for decades. The key piece of what we're doing is we've developed a vision system that lets these robots understand what's in the material stream. You have to imagine when you look in the grocery aisle, you have thousands and thousands of different kinds of packaging, right? Yeah. You know, Captain Crunch and this and that, all these different, you know, yogurts. Um, and it wasn't until recently that you could have a computer understand that tremendous variety, uh, the tremendous variety you have in the material. Um and not to mention handle it even though it might be crushed or torn or dirty or all these things. And so we've developed a vision system that can recognize material despite all these variations and then tell the robot uh, how to pick this stuff out. I see. So clearly you have stockpiled somewhere um, a cross-reference. In other words, mm-hmm. if you perceive a Minute made orange juice carton, mm-hmm. it's made of such and such kind of paper or plastic or wax. Yeah, you uh-huh. know, what's exciting about this technology is that, uh, you know, there's certain analogies to how we see things that um, uh, we're actually seeing play out in the in the um, algorithms. So the it's not really so much a database as that it's seen millions of examples of all this different material and it's learned, oh, this thing's kind of shiny and transparent. That's probably number one plastic. Ah, this is where the artificial intelligence comes in, I gather. Exactly. Okay. And so this is the uh, similar techniques used for autonomous cars and facial recognition. It really learns... Um, kind of the, the unique characteristics in uh, what it's looking at. The robots are learning. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're speaking with Matanya Horowitz. He's founder of Denver-based Amp Robotics, which has made a robot called Clark that is helping uh, sort recyclables. This is a big challenge for the recycling industry. And right now in its pilot phase, it's really only sorting cartons, I understand. Um, but those in and of themselves can be quite complicated in terms of their materials. Uh, what will this eventually mean for the industry? Like mm-hmm. if, if this is successful, deployed in more places and, and analyzing more materials, does it mean more things can be recycled? Does it have some implications for the environment or, or what? <laughs> good, uh, good question. And uh, yeah, there's sort of many layers to this onion, but one of the, um, the primary pieces that I kind of talked about is uh, kind of having a uh, uh, baseline sorting capacity that you can really count on. Um, one of the powerful pieces of the artificial intelligence is also that it continues to learn over time. Right now, an issue is that when packaging makers produce new packaging, uh, it may or may not be well handled by the existing infrastructure. These robots can adapt to that uh, fairly easily. Oh, that's interesting. So mm-hmm. the, the system as it's set up right now is pretty inflexible. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the inputs are changing dramatically. Exactly. I mean, my it, milk container has changed about 15 times since <laughs> I was a kid putting it in my cereal. Yeah. And when you think about things like the fact that we shop so much on Amazon and have, um, you know, all this cardboard and stuff entering the paper stream, uh, different amounts of – but we're also reading less newspapers, uh, different amounts of plastic entering the waste stream. These facilities might be set up for one type of waste stream that existed 10 years ago, but is very different now. Mm. Um, 
Uh, well, say say more about the environmental implications. Like, mm-hmm. it, so if you make the recycling business, you know, smoother somehow, mm-hmm. um, does that mean more stuff gets recycled? A- absolutely. So uh, right now, uh, there's a number of statistics uh, that kind of paint a picture that we could be doing a lot better uh, with our recycling in the United States. Okay. Um, as you make the recycling process more efficient, uh, and if you're able to uh, lower the cost or or more uh, efficiently lever- uh, leverage your existing capital. Um, you start to see more recycling facilities appear. You start to see those recycling facilities taking on more material, and it becomes easier and easier to meet your diversion goals and expand access to recycling throughout the industry. How did you come up with this? How, how were you introduced to the world of recycling? Um, so I, uh, I've always been uh, kind of a you know robot geek. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I studied the standard the the standard canon of uh, Saturday morning cartoons of Transformers and and Voltron <laughs> and, and these kinds of things. But in 2000, and but I never really thought about it as a career. In 2004, there was a big competition called the DARPA Grand Challenge. DARPA, a government agency, put together a competition to have autonomous cars race across the desert. For the first time, you could really see this technology was coming. It was really uh, had a lot of promise. So I began studying this, uh, these algorithms and the mathematics in graduate school and looked for places that they might be useful and then kind of learned about the recycling world. So it kind of came from the outside uh, in. DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, so that the idea there of some of this technology helping in defense. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a New York Times article uh, recently about recycling that said it was more costly than sending waste to landfills. And the article laid out that there's plenty of room in landfills across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, do, Do we, to some extent, maybe kid ourselves about how good recycling is? for the for the world? Yeah, you know, that's a, a great question. And I think a lot of people kind of share this perspective of, you know, I don't really know what's going on in this recycling world. Yeah, it's kind of a black box. You know, yeah. I, I put something in a, in a dumpster on faith in a way. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, one thing I'll kind of um, say right away is many recycling centers have, um, you know, tours and programs. EcoCycle in Boulder has a great one. You can actually see what's going on. But um, it's a very, you know, nuanced picture. Uh in nearly so landfills uh, capacity, um, yeah, it's a, it's a more complex story there. But in many cases, recycling is actually more cost effective uh, than sending material to the landfill. Uh, in New York, for example, they uh, have to send their material all the way to landfills in Pennsylvania and Ohio, and so you have this huge transportation cost. They're paying a hundred dollars per ton to dispose of material, but if um, if they recycle it, the city has actually paid ten dollars per ton for their paper. And so you have this huge spread from $100 per ton to to making $10 per ton. And certainly if you can bring down the cost of recycling and Mm -hmm. its efficiency and what people get out of the end of it, uh, that changes the equation. Thank you for being with us and uh, putting some light in the black box. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. Matanya Horowitz is the founder of Denver-based Amp Robotics. He's testing a robot that can identify and sort recyclables, which he says will improve the quality of the end product. There are ads for detergent, for prescription drugs, and now for Colorado's outdoors. Great Outdoors Colorado has launched the Generation Wild campaign. It's a multi-year marketing effort to get kids outside. CPR's Sam Brash reports. Denver mom Frances Gallardo is like a lot of parents. With school out, she's worried her kid will spend his summer glued to a screen. 
they're get like possessed by TV and games and stuff. So I try not to let them watch TV or play games so much, at least an hour or two at the most. Gallardo was picking up her son Jorge from his last day at school at Godsman Elementary in West Denver. The eight-year-old greets her with a hug. You play outside a lot? Uh, sometimes. Yeah? What do you tend to do outside? Uh, well, I just play and go on the swings and spin around. Gallardo says she takes Jorge to the park when she can, but it's tough. She's a single mom, and she won't let him play outside without supervision. I'm very protective of my child. Plus, he's my only one, so... That kind of concern around outdoor play is itself a concern for Great Outdoors Colorado. Chris Castilian runs the agency, which uses lottery money to pay for outdoor recreation projects. Kids are overscheduled, overscreened, and overprotected these days. In 2003, the University of Michigan found that the amount of time kids spend just messing around outside had declined to just four to seven minutes per day. What we're trying to do is change the mindset about what you do when you have a free moment. Is it naturally to default to picking up your phone or your iPad and playing games, or is it naturally to go outside and walk down the street to a park? To do that, Generation Wild proposes a list of 100 things kids should do before they're 12. Each ad features a number, like this TV spot. Number 97, ride a horse. Most of the other activities are cheaper and easier for parents. Number one, skip rocks. Number five, roll down a hill. Mike Sukul leads Sukul Advertising and Design. The agency developed the campaign. We're going to compete against, you know, all those really cool brands like Xboxes. And, you know, those things are okay, but, again, we think the outdoors is every bit as good, if not, you know, cooler than those brands. To prove it, Sukul is redesigning bus stops into unconventional ads. You can talk through tin cans linked with a string at one, or pop a wheelie on a bike at another. Because we think we can start getting kids to interact with them and be like, whoa, that was fun, that was cool, right? Why don't I do that more often? But kids aren't really Generation Wild's target audience. Their moms are. They're the kind of the nurturers, organizers, schedulers, the role modelers and networkers. That's Dan Schultz, who's working on the campaign with Sukul. The agency is far from the first to see moms as the gatekeepers of family activity. Brands like Tide, Kraft, Whole Foods, they all advertise with mom in mind. But Generation Wild is selling habits, not products. So Sukul interviewed groups of moms across Colorado to figure out the GoCo campaign. When you start talking about it in, in context of their own experiences from childhood, They love those things, and they want those things for their kids. That's why Sukul went for a list of simple experiences. It's meant to give moms ideas, but also to stir up nostalgia. Erin Masick, a mom in Denver, participated in the campaign research. She likes the final result. It was gratifying to see a campaign that kind of played on that, that you can start with small experiences, and in the minds of children, they can become really big things. Masick could be Generation Wild's poster child, or poster mom. She often takes her four-year-old son, Charlie, to play in Cherry Creek, just below a recycling plant. The research was a reminder of why she makes that effort. It made us all aware of the different things that our kids do that we would take for granted. Charlie's trips to the creek have had some impressive results, even by adult standards. He took me to the spot where, last year, he found what looked like a log sticking up out of the water. But then we donated it to the museum, and then it was a mammoth tusk! 
That's right. Charlie found a fossilized tusk in industrial Denver. It's now archived at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Pretty cool. Finding a fossil is not on the Generation Wild list, but that's kind of the point. The list is like a starter kit, and the outdoors offers plenty of possible additions. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. That's Colorado Matters for today. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook, and our producers include Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, and Stephanie Wolf. I'll be away enjoying the summer for the next few weeks, and Andrea Dukakis will be your host. You can connect with the show at Colorado Matters or CPR News on Facebook. We're also a podcast. Subscribe through your favorite podcast service, including iTunes. We're also on NPR One. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.